0: The Guardian.
1: Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee.
0: Me, Shan Kane. And me, Claire Armistead.
1: This week we talk to Rory McLean and Luke Harding about how writing about Russia has become a genre in and of itself, which opens up a question we'll be discussing later on. Is there a firm dividing line between the genres of fiction and non-fiction after all? Laurie MacLean is a travel writer who's been roaming Eastern Europe, Asia and beyond for 30 years. His most recent journey, Pravda Ha Ha, or should that be Ha Ha? It retraces the course he took through Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. An extraordinary journey which became his best-selling debut, Stalin's Nose. But is truth subjective in a world of alternative facts? He came to the studio to talk with Claire and The Guardian's Luke Harding, whose book about the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko, a very expensive poison, was transformed into a sellout play at London's Old Vic.
0: Now, the reason I wanted to have you together is because I have a theory about the way that we write about Russia now, I think it's developing into a genre. Um, you both come from different traditions. Luke, you a, were a reporter in Moscow and that's your basis is in the, the gathering and reporting of facts, sometimes very contentious facts. Um, Rory, you're you're a sort of more a free and you sort of <laughs> drive around. And uh, in your original um, book, um, Stalin's Nose, Stalin's Nose, you drove around in a in a, a tra an old trabant with your widowed aunt and a pig called Winston. That's didn't you? right.
2: <laughs> yes, that's that's what it says in a book.
0: <laughs> so so um, am I right about this idea of there being a genre of Russian writing, Luke? Um. I think I think that's right. I think there've
3: been a, a series of um powerful nonfiction books if you go back 25 years there's uh, David Remnick's Lenin's Tomb which won the Pulitzer which was a a, a really rather brilliant Chronicle of of the collapse of the Soviet Union um, and uh, the rise and fall of Gorbachev, uh, and since then, uh, lot, lots of great books from, uh, ranging from Chrystia Friedland, who's now Canada's foreign minister, to Peter Pomeranzov, who's exploring the nature of, of truth and and post modernity in Russia, and I, I guess the sort of non fiction spy thrillers that I write about Alexander Litvinenko's death, but also after I got kicked out from. Russia in 2011. I I wrote a book called Mafia State, which essentially posited that uh, the spy services of Vladimir Putin organized crime and government bureaucracy had sort of fused into a single entity. And and, and these are very powerful stories, uh, so surreal and dark and disturbing, you, you, you sort of almost think that you don't need to write fiction because nonfiction is so arresting. But there are some, some great, great novels about about modern Russia as So well.
0: you mentioned Peter Pomerantsov, whose um, most recent book significantly was called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, um, Adventures in Modern Russia, which, which brings us to you, Rory. <laughs> Adventures, it's, n- it's no longer, of course, modern Russia. And, and one, of the, one of the selling lines of your marketing people is that when you started travelling in 1989, there were 11 countries with border walls or fences, and now there are 70. 70, yep, just above 70 now. 70 in, in what terrain?
2: Uh, in in the world, there were in 1989 there were eleven fortified borders in the world: North Korea, Cyprus, um, and uh, of course the Berlin Wall. And you, <laughs> the when the Berlin Wall fall fell, of course, there was just such it was such a period of optimism, of hope, of this idea of a a brave new world, Europeans together, and i was fascinated of course i was swept up by that uh, that that optimism and what has become of it and that was the reason behind my my decision to retrace the journey backwards so not from berlin to moscow but from moscow to berlin and to brexit britain to ask what happened to the optimism and hope of 1989 Uh, what became of it and so (laughs) and so I often I'm playing playing with how to how to how to say the title of the book should it be Pravda ha 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 or Pravda ha ha or Pravda ha ha
0: (laughs) just now you were showing us uh, a series of fake fake um fact pictures that you put together of yourself with with Vladimir Putin oh, in yes. various fairy tale destinations. Yes,
2: yes, I I did it in my backyard. My son took the picture, and then uh, then a friend who, who's not quite as skilled, shall I say? He's a fabulous fabulous um, uh, photo processor, but not quite as skilled as the Internet Research Agency in uh, Saint Petersburg. But he managed to bring this uh, cut out Putin which uh, I carry with me when I go to talks, he, he managed to, shall we say, bring him to life standing beside me. And, it, and it's, a, I'm, it's a very proud moment for me because in this photograph, so in this fake photograph, I actually have the chance to say to President Putin, I don't think that's fair what you've done. I think it's a little greedy
0: so Luke, this thing of fake news I mean you, you must be surrounded with it. in fact, we've had experts into The Guardian to advise us how to deal with deep fakes, haven't we well
3: well, well, well yes, I mean I, I was just gonna, wanted just briefly to go back to, to Rory 's question about what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union and I think your friend Rory Vladimir Putin happened that, that <laughs> what, what, what's interesting and, and the, the stuff that we 're all writing, you and I in different forms it, is the fact that, that this, this bright dawn fizzled out, and there was a very mm-hmm. deliberate Counter-revolution led mm. by Putin, Indeed. and the KGB to, mm-hmm. to to restore, if not literally the Soviet Union, but uh, that playbook, yes, of, May- of assassination, of causing mayhem, uh, and and uh, Claire of, of of deepfakes as well, and and th- th- this idea that actually. The the, the truth doesn't exist um, empirically, um, which actually is a Leninist idea that truth (laughs) back under communism was subservient to to class, to a kind of class truth. But Putin has sort of taken this idea and expanded it in a very nihilistic way to the idea that that, that there is no truth at all. um, And he uses Fakery. He uses lies. He uses propaganda, not just to um, dissemble before Russians, but also he's taking this on the road to try and bamboozle Americans, Brits, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A- and Westerners. And I think he's actually been quite successful. He's doing rather well. To, yeah. is it
0: just to come back to this issue of truth now, yes. to pin it down a bit more. In yeah. at the opening of your book, you you quote definitions of truth that yes. you employ, um, <laughs> and From it's one. <laughs> Pravda of Pravda, the title of your book, and which means truth, whatever yes, truth yes, means yes, <laughs> in yes. Russia. And one is truth. Two is disposition to speak or act truly or without without deceit, truthfulness, veracity, sincerity. Um, three, Russian broadsheet newspaper, formerly the official newspaper of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what was Adolf saying? There's no 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 truth in Pravda and no news in his vestia. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so um. What did you find? And t- tell us about. I mean, you found outrageous things, didn't you? Let's start with Putin's pecker. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, this this is a story I tell about the chicken czar. Um and the chicken czar. He made God. the stories are just so fantastic. It just it 's so rich <laughs> for a writer you know the the stories that come out of Russia that have always come out of russia are are so rich for a writer so the the story of putin 's pecker is there is this very special um, hallucinogenic uh, mushroom which exists just to the west of of um, of moscow and uh, and I was introduced to a man who who claimed to have um Discovered it and marketed it, marketed it
0: and so he took you out to his daca his
2: the remains the remains of his, his dacca. yes yes, Dacha. which he destroyed to access this uh, this this remarkable hallucinogenic um, pecker.
0: (laughs) There are quite a few things in this book that you can never verify. You can't verify the existence of, but in this case you do verify the existence of what you are told is Mm. served up in a snuff box and it's a a white mushroomy thing.
2: What I want this book to do is that I want it to provoke because we have become (sighs) lazy because of the the, the, the pressures, uh, because of the financial crisis, because of disappointment in Russia and f- countries of the former Warsaw Pact, uh, it, we have come, many of us have come to gobble up simplistic stories. And we're not able, we're not willing, so many of us aren't willing to to address, to face the very complicated problems that that exist in the world today. And so we want simple solutions. We want, or many want Brexit. Many would like President Trump, uh, like President Trump as a president. The stories that these individuals tell are very powerful. And in many cases, the majority just lap them up these simplistic stories and and so this is how I want to uh, how I want Pravda HaHa to provoke I want to present stories which are on the edge of believability so individuals or readers will say but but is that true well in fact are the stories I'm hearing from from the Conservative Party conference or from Westminster or from the White House are they true maybe I should not accept that there is a single
0: truth Maybe I should question. Are you saying that you didn't actually have a slither of Putin's pecker and end up rather high? I'm not saying that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> have you heard of it?
0: I, I, I haven't, but but I thought I knew everything about
3: Putin. But, I, but this is one story <laughs> that's alluded me in my decade-long investigation.
2: As far as I know, he <laughs> has never indulged in it. But, uh... <laughs> but um, I mean, the thing about Putin is he, he's
3: he's he's a sort of self-mythologizing creature. He's mm, someone mm. who strips off and, and fit, is topless on, on horseback yes, and, yeah. and swims to the bottom of the Redi- Med- Mediterranean and comes back with Grecian urns. He, <laughs> he flies with cranes <laughs> and so on. I mean, he's, he's his own dramaturg. So in in a way, actually, it's in the spirit of Putinism that you, you, you tell
2: this story slash fable. Yeah, well, it's like it, it, like, <laughs> like shallow fakes, my photograph of me and Putin mm. Uh, There's a wonderful... On the internet, there's a picture of him riding a vast Russian bear at the moment. I love those shallow fakes because I think they make us question. They make you say, well, hang on, did he really strip off and catch fish and ride on a horse?
0: So I'm going to challenge you again on this issue of truth and reality because for us as journalists, corroboration is Mm -hmm. absolutely Mm -hmm. vital, isn't it? And absolutely nailing down facts. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that you're happy to just... Tell a story as if it existed because it's been told as a story, and it makes a good one.
2: I would. I am happy to tell it as long as I qualify it, as long as I pace, place it in in context. Um, I have a responsibility to the individuals who are good enough to talk to me, uh, be to be interviewed by me. I I want to reflect them honestly. So if they to- have told me a story. Uh, yes, I will try to uh, substantiate it, but equally, I will accept them, accept them for for the stories they tell.
0: So, but you did take, you did, were given a sliver of this mushroom.
2: I did and spend did my time with Dimitri <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and there is a sort of a little theme of altered consciousness going through. Now, is that a metaphorical evocation of altered consciousness, or is that a a literal thing?
2: I, I, it. I think it comes back to stories. I'll come back to stories. I think it's it's so important <laughs> to provoke, as you're doing, to to encourage the reader to ask a question. But is that true? Is that how it was? Uh, I, I, because of the subjectivity of experience, because the historical record is never complete. I, I believe that histories if you like stories histories are constructions there have always been gaps which have had to be filled in and as writers as journalists we do our very best to corroborate but what that leads me to thinking is if there is or if there are gaps in the historical record and if they need to be filled in that they have been filled in often for their time with a subjective viewpoint
3: well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I understand, um, Rory's relativism and 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 your kind of playful approach, but it, it's it's very different from, from what we do as journalists. Indeed, because actually indeed, what I've tried to do, and, and, and colleagues as well, is to actually discover hmm. truth, the mm-hmm. truth, rather yes. than a, a, a truth. Yes. I, I, in in the face of lying and uh, mm-hmm. propaganda mm-hmm. Um, by by powerful state entities, in particular Russia. So, mm-hmm. if you take the Litvinenko story. Mm-hmm. Um, When I got to to Moscow for The Guardian in 2007, just after Livnyenko was was poisoned with a radioactive cup of tea, uh, the Kremlin was denying any involvement, saying it was all a fiendish British plot featuring Mm -hmm. Tony Blair and MI6. Mm -hmm. And and I met the two killers and um, tried to chase down the role of the FSB, Putin's spy agency, which actually was responsible. And it was Mm -hmm. only... When we got a public inquiry in two thousand fifteen, which I, I covered for, for for the Guardian, that we finally got all the police evidence and the science and so on, and and actually the reason I wrote my book was to say, look, this is what really happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, a man was murdered. This is how it was done by two inept assassins who flew in, poured this polonium down the hotel bathroom, failed several mm-hmm. times, went to an erotic nightclub, and so on. And uh, th- that kind of that kind of empirical storytelling, which is which is real, I, I think, is so important because. Unscrupulous sovereign states and unscrupulous leaders, including this country, make stuff up and lie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I see see my job as a kind of writer, reporter to to actually get it right and to present the, the, the truth for, for for everybody because otherwise in a way if you if you if you embrace this sort of relativism mm-hmm. then 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 you, you're 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 playing the kind of despots game
0: there's a lovely section where you go to Kaliningrad um, which I've always been fascinated in um, because it is effectively a, a Russian naval boatyard now um, and you get you literally end up in a dead end and somebody says, ah, oh, but you ha- we, we need, I can tell you where the Amber Room is. And the Amber Room is, is this sort of mythical room that, as far as everybody knows, has been, was pulverized at some point mm-hmm. by somebody. Yes. And takes you down into the tunnels beneath the new Stalinist edifice, which was built on the, where the, the beautiful Königsberg yes. castle was. Yes. And tell us about that.
2: Um, Tell you about being taken. Well, when I was in Kaliningrad, I was, you know, when, when, I have to say, I'm not a journalist. I don't purport to be a journalist. I'm a storyteller. And, and so, but so when I was in Kaliningrad, I was, uh, I was, (laughs) I thought, I've arrived here and I have nothing to write about. There's I thought, oh well, I've wasted a couple of days. It happens. I guess I better carry on and get on to Ukraine, which was or Transnistria, which was the next destination. And then I was I was swept up <laughs> by a sort of tour guide who uh, took me to the casinos because at one point um, uh, the powers that be in Russia thought Kaliningrad should become the uh, <laughs> the uh, the Macau of Europe, uh, built lots of um, casinos. And uh, and then I was taken by him with a couple of others to uh, to discover the amber room, which he swore initially that he knew, and we just ended up wandering aimlessly beneath this great, ugly. So, uh, Soviet-era behemoth building, which uh, was supposed to be, I think, 24 stories floor high, but because it was built on the marshy ground and the foundations of the old castle, it had started to collapse, so they scaled it back to 21, but still it kept, <laughs> it kept sinking in the earth.
0: So you and, and a French couple, surreally, and a kitten that you yes, discovered yes. in yeah, the water yeah, yeah. and this guide. Yes. But you come to a dead end.
2: We come to a dead end. Yeah, it was a dead end. There are <laughs> uh, there are when, when one is traveling, you know, one follows one's intuitions. One follows instincts. One's, one hopes you don't set everything up. You, you hope that someone you meet will introduce, will lead to a series of encounters or a contact or a, uh, an interesting story. So, Rory, one of
0: the things that you um, do is you, you can meet sort of in unexpected figures, figures who, who don't fit into any narrative. For mm-hmm. example, your Nigerian, little Nigerian man who you mm-hmm. discovered on, a met- on the metro in Moscow. Yes,
2: first saw him on the metro. With a bird on his shoulder. Well, there was a <laughs> bird in the metro <laughs> and it briefly alighted on his shoulder
0: and And the story is he 's called Sammy yes, and the and what his story tells is a story about con- transcontinental migration, yes. which yes. totally weirdly took him got him stuck in Moscow, yes. where you would yes. not expect a northern Nigerian to have arrived no no tell us about that a bit about that
2: <sighs> These, it, it, this Pravda haha is a reflection on my reflection on the history of Europe over the last thirty years and key to that is the the uh, the story the plight of of migrants of migration of refugees and um, and so I tell the story of three refugees in the book, one of whom. Um, if you like, the most entertaining one is the story of Sammy.
0: And Sammy had had his toes cut off by nuns. <laughs> it, did that one really
2: toe, happen? One toe. Eight toe. Don't, oh, who's overdoing it here now, Claire? <laughs> 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 one toe. And it was the baby toe. Yeah.
0: Because, because they wanted to enslave him, basically. Well, he, that, was that a true story? He,
2: he fell out of... Um, uh, he ended up being in Russia without... Uh, his visa expired. And so he was uh, there illegally. And so they he became rather indispensable to the nuns in this uh, in this very dodgy monastery, which he would never name to me. And so they uh, came up with a way
0: of holding on to him, of threatening him. So now th- this story about um, the thing about um, tr- sort of trans-global stories... Um, it- it uh, i was fascinated by um oliver bullock's book Moneyland, yeah. which came out <coughs> earlier <coughs> this year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yes, and that and he's come out of it's come out of his his knowledge of russia basically isn't it and he's and it has led to this idea that there is a sort of money land which hovers above above the world which just only rich people have access to and they can i i sort of have this sort of image of sort of th- of of, of um, Leonardo type sort of lightning bolts coming down to earth, which is the access to passports, and which is also a conduit for capital to come down and swamp to swamp the world that the rest of us live in.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I thought it was a, a fascinating book um, and it's got lots of Russian characters and, and protagonists in it. And it's interesting because it, it sort of builds on some of the reporting that we did with the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers, the Panama Papers came out in 2016, where, where we, for the first time, had a, a sort of overview of how global kleptocracy works. Um, And, of course, there were oligarchs in there and kind of mafia guys and bad guys, but also sort of French dentists and German (laughs) chicken barons uh, and sort of upper-middle-class people you wouldn't expect to have a secret account in Panama or offshore in the BVI. And my, my sort of takeaway from it was Firstly, the the scale of corruption, but secondly, the, the the really perfidious role played by the UK. I mean, so many of these corporate entities were registered in London or Glasgow or Birmingham, and and moreover, there was a a class of facilitators or of of lawyers, accountants, company formation agents, who were behind the scenes getting rich off 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 the back of kleptocracy i mean it's not surprising that if you're a government minister that you would have an isle of man an entity and a a lichtenstein bank account and all the rest of it what was more surprising were were the firms with with rather nice sort of georgian offices in central london and 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 lovely topiary uh who were doing all this secretly um and so so yeah it's in in, it's interconnected but we in the west cannot absolve ourselves because we, we actually are are part of the problem and i, I, I without varying too much into politics i sort of fear for our post brexit future that we're going to end up being monaco with bad weather that this will be our role <laughs> in the world we'll, we'll be a monaco where it rains but but we we roll out the red carpet for every criminal in toytown Indeed, no, i
0: just want to to bring bring us back to, to your book, Glory, yes. and to, to one particular encounter which is really telling. We mentioned Orban and Hungary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, you're not t- just talking about Russia as mm-hmm, is now. You're talking mm-hmm. about all the fallout states mm-hmm. or the states that have mm-hmm, made their mm-hmm. own futures. Mm-hmm. Will you just read us about your 30 years on encounter with a oh. carpenter you met oh, when this you is, were r- writing Stalin's... This battle. is
2: Alios. Alios, uh, living in Tokai, um, now since... Uh, uh, such he was he he died not so long ago now but um he had such principles communism was banished capitalism come in had come in so Alios's son opened a little shop uh, just next door and it was filled with peppers and oranges and 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 he was so excited it was the it was a new beginning and now well it has changed I told him of the changes that I had seen on my journey—of hopes betrayed, fears manipulated, and people choosing to believe lies rather than face difficult questions. I also see that nobody in Hungary is in danger of losing weight," I added. Since the fall of the Wall, Hungarians had become the fourth most obese nation in the world. ''People eat well in our banana republic,'' said Elias. It helps them to overlook the ruin around us. Have some more coffee. The ruin, I said as my cup was refilled. Our judges have been tamed and journalists restrained once again. Enemies are invented and loyal politicians given our property once again. Now we are just their marketplace. Including Sandor's shop? Including Sandor, Aldi with its Hungarian partner, Bought the old co-op, undercut his prices, drove him out, drove my son out of his own home like the AVH had driven me out. Unso so weiter, vita, so weiter. And so it goes on and on, as ever.
0: So that is f- fairly depressing, isn't it? Is there any hope? Do we have hope for ourselves or for, for the former... Of- the countries of the former Soviet Union. I, I mean,
3: I think I think there is hope. It, it's easy to, to to lapse into 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 gloom and pessimism, but but uh, the the KGB is not immortal, um, <laughs> and Vladimir Putin sure? and his his sort of secret service chums, who who've really run the state for for two decades, are now in their. Mid 60s, um, and despite their investment in nanotechnology, I don't think they're going to live forever. And meanwhile, we have a new generation of people under 25 who've known nothing but Putin who are demonstrating. We had big Mm -hmm. protests in Mm -hmm. Moscow and Mm St. Petersburg in July and August, and that doesn't equate to political change or the regime falling down, but it it does show civic engagement. Mm -hmm. And I think we we live in an era of fast time. We certainly live in an era of fast news and Mm -hmm. instant communication. Um, And so, I, I I'm sort of demographically optimistic, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, mm-hmm. Um, even for this country as well, mm. actually, um, that it's not going to be this kind of gloom and populism um, and post-truth um, forever. And I think we need to just carry on having writing books like your great book Rory and, and, and having civilized conversations that, that, that <laughs> indeed, in our own modest indeed. literary way is, is, is a step in the right <laughs> direction <laughs>
2: yes it's, it's the pendulum isn't it the pendulum has swung to to one extreme and hopefully it's on the way back now. I, I think some sort of... I, I totally agree with what you say, Luke, about the younger generations. I think that's the hope. Ah, it was ever thus. That's the hope for the future. But also I think, interestingly, uh, uh, on a geopolitical level, a, a, a need has arisen for, for Germany and Russia to come to some sort of terms because I, I, uh, Russia would like its... <laughs> Its, uh, its efforts, shall we say, in Syria to be acknowledged in a way so it can say at home, it is a victory. We, the Russians, have won. Um, and Germany would like to ease many of the Syrians back to Syria, the, the Syrian refugees who are in, in, uh, in Germany. And that can't happen without Russia's help. So, and plus, add in Crimea. So I think there might be an area for understanding what do you think about this uh, in the future?
3: Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm sceptical about <laughs> that. I, I don't think Russia has um, played a glorious role in, in, in Syria. Oh, and it's I no think, glorious I Crimea, role. unfortunately, will, will be unresolved. Um, right. uh, and it's going to be quite hard to, to reconcile um, that.
0: Well, thank you both for your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> and stories. And stories. <laughs>
1: That was Rory McLean and Luke Harding. Pravda Ha Ha, or should that be Ha Ha, is published by Bloomsbury, and A Very Expensive Poison is published by Guardian Faber in the UK and Vintage in the US. Or am I just making all that up? We'll continue our discussion of the blurred lines between fact and fiction after the break.
0: Welcome back to the Guardian Books
1: podcast where we're examining whether the divide that exists in bookshops between fiction and non-fiction is something of a fiction itself. So Sean, as our resident ex-bookseller, mm. were there ever times when you weren't sure whether a book should live under fiction or non-fiction?
4: Uh yes there is a line that is blurred by authors themselves and then sometimes the line is blurred by readers uh, after the fact and so one person that we used to shelve in both fiction and in travel writing was Bruce Chatwin Mm. and there are sort of all sorts of interesting conundrums raised by Bruce Chatwin who's sort of most famous I guess for song lines and in Patagonia but there is There are sort of interesting criticisms to be made of, of his writing. Um, he would often write of a character uh, who shared a name with him and had lots of biographical details shared with him. But then he would sort of write about communities that perhaps he could have been more embedded with so I'm I'm thinking of Songlines particularly as an Australian you know the the Songlines is kind of a tricky book for a lot of people because he basically spent nine weeks in Alice Springs in 83 and 84 um, but couldn't speak any Indigenous languages and was writing about Indigenous communities so had to rely on interpreters where he could find them and then spoke to a lot of white Australians for this book so there's all sorts of criticism about how accurate this book is anyway but then his sort of unwillingness to settle on whether he was writing fiction or non-fiction, he said himself that he didn't believe there actually was a divide between the two.
0: Well, it's interesting that, that um, one thing that occurred to me when I was thinking about him—I read these books a long time ago—was Songlines was a late book, mm. but it was also a book about it was about Australia, one of in air quotes our. Places. Yes. But in, in Patagonia, which he wrote in 1977, it, because it was such a much more foreign place, whether we asked the same, we gave the same cultural in- interrogation to, right. to his, his approach and his, his attitude to other people's truths yes. that he was purporting to be reporting. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing about In Patagonia was it was described by his editor and by him as cubist. <laughs> I think, what relation does Picasso, <laughs> b- b- a Picasso portrait, re- r- carry to the human face as we see it? But this yeah. is a particular problem
1: with <laughs> travel writing, Claire.
0: Yeah, it came up in, in the interview that, that travel writers, are dead, the truth that they are mining is a different sort of truth. It's an impressionistic truth. I wouldn't say it's a cubist truth hmm. always, mm. and particularly in Rory's case. So, you know, I, I absolutely would not question Rory's devotion to the truth, his truth, but the fact that he might not have gone off on quite such a mushroom hallucinatory trip, as he has reported, that becomes a sort of stylized way of carrying the narrative forward. It's something that, in terms of journalism, is something you couldn't get away with. And I think that there are these two traditions, and the travel tradition um, has had a very vexed and contested history, which goes back also to Rajad Kapuscinski, Mm. um, you know, as international listeners will know that this travel reportage goes has a, a, a sort of, in a way a more distinguished tradition in in middle Europe than it does in in the UK mm. and Kapuscinski was the, the great proponent of it um, and he at one point um, when he was questioned he said he uses magic realism as, as yes. part of his no you know magic realism is the, is classically a, a fictional trope yes. obviously
4: well he, he talked about it as literary rep- reportage what he did but then Being a journalist and being someone that was quite famous for his, you know, pure journalistic work on top of his his books, there is a question I think about, you know, I think it's fair sometimes for people to feel like maybe they have been taken for a ride when, you know, they think a book is reportage and then someone like Kapuscinski turns around and says, actually it's allegorical, which is uh, what he said about the emperor. And the Emperor, which was his portrait of of Hala Selassie yeah and, and again you see
0: that was a book that dealt with a, a an area of the world that we're not utterly familiar with yes. so so we take it on trust that he's that he does know what he's talking about yes and
4: so there were reporters who were were in Ethiopia at the same time who um, disputed his account of some facts um it, it, you know it could be um as little as he says at one point that uh, the capital didn't have bookshops and someone else said well actually no there there were six at the time and then uh, the initials that he used um, when talking about witnesses in a court case and someone said that the initials don't match up to anyone that was uh, involved in that court case but then he would talk about his own writing as again not fitting pure reportage or fiction at all and it, it was this sort of strange blend and you're right though that it's perhaps that he did Feel a certain license to do this, both because of his career as as a, a general journalist, but also because the, of the locations he was writing about. And there was criticism, sort of after the fact, of him and the free pass he was given to sort of say that the emperor was allegorical. Someone said, you know, well, what is if the reverse had happened and he'd written a whole book about Poland, and then turned around and said that it was an allegory for for Ethiopia. You know, that wouldn't be okay. Like, you know, Western readers and European readers would say, well, hang on, that's that's not right. We, we need the sort of facts of this. Yeah, but so because it was Africa, it was
0: sort of okay. And why did he not choose to do what Giles Foden did when he wrote The Last King of Scotland, which mm. is to make an all-out satire, yeah. um, which is also has has a truth in it, but but is not aspiring to be rep- uh, reporting any sort of facts. Yeah.
1: Do, do you think we're in danger of being a bit too Anglo-Saxon about all this? Uh, when she reviewed Artur Domoslavsky's controversial biography of Kapuscinski, in 2012, Agata Pizik pointed out that the controversy in the foreign media was all about how he had embroidered the truth in service to style or politics, whereas in Poland the controversy was about his affairs, his close connections to the communist intelligence services and his uneasy adaptation to post-1989 realities. Does this distinction between fiction and non-fiction read differently outside the UK and the US?
0: Well, there are two things going on there, aren't there? One is that she's referring to the gossip quotient of a homegrown writer, so mm. they were more interested in the gossip. Yeah. Particularly,
1: his wife was outraged.
0: Yeah, but I do think, you know, I think that, that there is a, a point about um, different cultures having different writing traditions. And it, I, I'm on the board of English PEN, which is the writers' charity, and um, and one of the conversations we have a lot is the difference between journalism and literature, and that there is a continuum, but there is a cut-off point as well. So yes. our responsibility is to writers. As literary beings, which excludes some journalists, but by no means all. But it is very different. And, uh, and writers in the Arabic world or in parts of Europe, for example, would—they just don't make that distinction in the same way at all. Mm. And that—that re- that is a reflection of their self-identification, but also the sort of literature they write, which brings us again back to Kapachinski.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm struck. By, I remember Alexander Hemon saying that there just aren't any words for fiction or non-fiction in Bosnian. He says, "This is not to say that there is no truth or untruth. It's just that a literary text is not defined by its relation to truth or imagination."
0: Well, yes, I mean, you know, and and this is, here we come to the nub of it. It's my slight anxiety around it is that I just think in this world, and particularly where we came in on the reporting of Russia, which and and the reason why I wanted to do this podcast was I have noticed this sort of gonzo reporting of <laughs> Russia, and and you know. Uh, you have to guard the parameters of truth and reality very very carefully in an era in which there is so much false news yes. so at what point does the writer is the writer colluding with false news by actually saying oh my god that's a good story yeah. you know that's fantastic and is it just part of the Twitter sphere fantasy about what's going on um, in fact I think that um, Rory says something very interesting. Um, He says, at the start of the 21st century, many Russians and then many Westerners lost their appetite for the truth. They chose not to ask questions, preferring the easy choice of of falsehood, of being fed simplistic solutions to complicated problems, of championing leaders who have the power to reshape reality in line with their stories. Mm. So what he's, so he has identified something that's going in on in, in society. But in doing that, you know, the writer has to take on the mantle of trust to be telling the truth and not just a different sort of falsehood. And and it becomes very morally difficult. And yes. isn't the problem with
1: that, that we expect too much of narrative non-fiction or of memoir, we expect our memoirists to remember a conversation they had when they were 17 with their girlfriend or whatever, we expect a, a, a writer of narrative non-fiction to move us in the way we're moved by a novel, but actually maybe that's just not possible.
0: So in the shaping of fiction you're creating a different reality aren't you? Because yes. events don't happen like, they don't unfold with a good narrative arc, that is the creation of the writer. But so I would
4: also like argue that if you know in yourself that you can't reliably... Uh, relay facts from your own past you're perfectly entitled to write novels inspired by your own past but sell it as a novel and don't sit on the fence and start calling it literary reportage because I do think there needs to be a safeguard for journalism and factual uh, storytelling as opposed to this sort of strange blend of fact and fiction where a reader is not necessarily armed with the knowledge to know what is true and what isn't and when a writer just shrugs at them and goes it's art that's kind of not good enough and it's certainly not good enough anymore but I don't really believe it ever was good enough I just think that there are some talented writers out there that could do beautiful things like Kapuscinski and Chatwin but There was a really uncomfortable line about what they were doing by going into the communities they did.
1: And yet, and yet, and yet we all want it. James Frey tried to sell his memoir, which was famously unmasked as being not true. He tried to sell it first as a novel, but nobody wanted to buy it.
4: Yeah, but you know, is that our problem, or is that the problem of publishers, and is that the problem of Frey that he was willing to go along for that? charade I think that
1: but we're the ones buying it we're the ones taking it that's off the shelves that's very
4: generous we Richard because <laughs> I did not buy it <laughs> and I, we put that in fiction in my bookshop by the way
0: <laughs> I have to, and I have to bring us back to the book that we that, that this discussion has sprung off which is Pravda ha ha or is it ha ha <laughs> <laughs> and, and to say this is a really good book you know we're, it, 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 we're not talking about James Frey here. Mm. we're not talking about the, the sort of creation of fantasy we're talking about an honest attempt to capture a reality that Rory has perceived, and the, if you, you know, the way you, you look at the relationship between the two eras and the two books, yeah, they are. This is something that one will go back to 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 say. This says something about the madness of our current times.
4: Mm.
1: The the translator Esther Allen, uh, I remember, said that that she says that bookshops in France often group their stock by country rather than dividing it between fiction and non-fiction do you think that's something that they ever catch on well in the, in the there's UK? a suggestion
0: we have mm. we have Russia which is i.e. fiction yes <laughs> yeah. there is no such thing as Pravda when you come to the Russia shelves <laughs> on the other hand when you come to the Finland shelves it's all about sort of social justice
4: <laughs> <laughs> well I, I think that I mean there are bookshops out there that do delve their books outside of genre but I would just say that there is a, um, a, a certain reader, I think, and, and, and count me in as one of them that finds that experience incredibly frustrating to go into a bookshop and have a sense of exactly what I want and then go up and be told that all the different shelves have been curated by different authors and maybe <laughs> the book I want is there somewhere and they've got no way of finding it for me. If you're a bookshop that has the capacity to do this, just put a copy of a book in every section you think someone will want to find so, it. So you,
0: so you end up also with the, with the sort of wonderful accidental jokes exactly. like Shirley Williams, the, the, the old, um, sort of d- very distinguished parliamentarian whose memoirs were called Climbing the Bookshelves yeah. and they were filed under mountaineering. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, that's all for this week. Um, next week, we're going to talk to Megan Phelps Roper about life after Westboro Baptist Church. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And remember, you can subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee.
0: Me, Shan Kane, Me, Claire Armistead.
1: And our producer, Esther Apoku-Jenny. Thanks for listening
4: and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to
0: theguardian.com slash podcasts.